everyone, it's your girl Ty here, which stands for Together Individual Entertainment, T-I-E. Alright, so today's story is, of course, part two of The Ghost of Christmas Present. So let's get into it, shall we? So we left off at procession, so let's continue the story. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose, the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon, to which a black swan was a matter of course, and in truth it was something, very like in it that mouse. Mrs. Crotchin made the gravy ready beforehand in the little saucepan. Hissing hot, Master Peter mashed the potatoes and incredible vinegar with Miss Blinda, sweetened up the applesauce, Martha dusted the hot plates, Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner. At the table, the two young crotches set chairs for everybody not for getting themselves. The mounting guard upon their posts crammed spoons into their mouth, lest they should shriek for goose before their turn came to be helped. At last the dishes were set on, and grace was set. It was succeeded by a breathless pause as Mrs. Crotchet was looking slowly. All along, the carving knights prepared to plunge it in the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all around the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young crotchets, beat on the table with the handle of his knife, and feebly cried, Hurrah! There never was such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there ever was such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor size and cheapness were the theme of universal admiration. Eat out the apple sauce and mashed potatoes. It was a significant dinner for the whole family. Indeed, as Mrs. Crotchet said, with great delight, serving one small atom of a bone upon the dish they had ate, and it at last. Yet everyone had had enough, and the youngest Crotchet in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now the plates being changed by Miss Belinda, Mrs. Crotchet left the room alone, too nervous to bear witness to take the pudding up and bring it in. Suppose it should not be done enough. Suppose it should be break in turning out. Suppose somebody should have gotten over the wall of the backyard and stolen it. Well, they were married with goose and supposition at which the two young crotchets became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Hollow, a great deal of steam, and pudding was out of the copper. A smell like a washing day. That was the cloth, a smell like an eating house and a pastry cooks next door to each other, with laundriness next door to that, that was the pudding. In half a minute, Mrs. Crotchet entered flushed, but smiling proudly with the pudding, like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half and half a cordon of ancient brandy at bed night, with Christmas holly stuck in into the top, oh, a wonderful pudding, Bob Cratchit said, and calmly too, regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage, Mrs. Cratchit said, and now the weight was off her mind, she would confess she had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought it 
was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat hurting to do so. Any project would have blushed to hint at such a thing. At last the dinner was all done, the cloth was cleared, and her swept at the fire made up. The compound in the jug being tasted and considered perfect apple and oranges were put upon the table and a shovel full of chestnut on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew around the hearth in what Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half of one, and Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers, and the custard cup without a handle. These held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done, and Bob served it out with beaming looks, while the chestnut on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. Then Bob purposed a Merry Christmas to us all, my dear, God bless us, which all the family re-echoed. God bless us, everyone, said Tiny Tip. The last of all, he sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held and withered a little hand in his and if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, said Scrooge, with an interest he had never felt before, tell me, if Tiny Tim will live, I see a vacant seat, replied the ghost, in poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, said Scrooge. Oh, no, kind spirit. Satan, he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race, returned the ghost. We will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it, and decrease the salt plants population. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit, and was overcome with penitence and grief. Man, the go said the ghost, if man you be in heart, not admit and forbear that wicked can't until you have discovered what the salt plus is, and where it is, will you decide what men shall live, what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions, like this poor man's child. Oh God, to hear the incense of belief pronouncing on the too much life among his hunger brothers. In the dust, Scrooge bent before the ghost, rebuke and trembling, cast his eyes upon the ground, but he raised them speedily on hearing his own name. Mr. Scrooge, said Bob, I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast, indeed, cried Mrs. Cratchit. Granny, I wish I had him here. I give him a piece of my mind to feast upon. I hope he didn't have a good appetite for it. My dear, said Bob, the children, Christmas Day. It should be Christmas Day, I am sure, she said. On which one drinks the health of such an onion, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge? You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you do, poor fellow. My dear, was Bob's mild answer. Christmas Day. I will drink his health for your sake and the day's. Said Mr. Crotchet, Mrs. Crotchet, 
not for his long, long life to him. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. The children drank a toast after her. It was the first of his own proceedings, which had no heartness in it. Tiny Tim drank it, and last of all, but he didn't care only two pence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast a dark shadow on the party, which was not dispelled for full five minutes. After it had passed away, they were ten times merrier than before. From the mere relief of Scrooge, the bell full being done with... Bob Cratchit told them how he had a situation in his eyes for Master Peter, which would bring in, if obtained full five and sixpence weekly. The two young Cratchits laughed tremendously at the idea of Peter being a man of business, and Peter himself looked thoughtfully at the fire between his collar, as if he were deliberately, deliberating what particular investments he should favor when he came into the receipt of the bewildering income Martha, who was a poor apprentice at the milliner's, then told them what kind of work she had to do, and how many hours she worked at the stretch, and how she meant to lie abed tomorrow morning for a good long rest. Tomorrow being a holiday, she passed it home. Also, how she had been a countess and a lord some days before, and how the lord was much about as tall as Peter, at which Peter pulled up his collar so high that he you couldn't have seen his head if you had been there. All the times and the chestnuts and the jug went round and round, and by and by they had a song about a lost child traveling in the snow from Tiny Tim, who had a plenty little voice, and sang it very well indeed. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof, and their clothes were scanty. And Peter might have known a very likely dint in the inside of the pawnbrokers, but they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when he, they faded and looked happier, yet in the bright sprinkling of the spirit torch at parting, Scrooge had his eyes upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. By the time it was getting dark and snowing pretty heavenly, and as Scrooge and the spirit went along the streets, the brightness of the roaring fires in the kitchen and parlors and all sorts of room was wonderful. He and the flickering of the blaze and was shown in preparation for a cozy dinner with the hot plates baking through and through before the fire and deep red curtains, ready to be dawned to shut out the cold and darkness. There were all the children of the house were running out into the snow to meet their married sisters, brothers, cousins, uncles, aunts, and be the first to greet them. Here again we shadow on the window blind of guests, assembling and their group of handsome girls, all hooded and fur-booted, and all chattering at once tripped lightly off to some near neighbor's house, where woe upon the single men who saw them enter are full witches. Well, they knew it in a glow, 
But if you had a judge from the number of people on their way into a friendly gathering, you might have thought that no one was at home to give them welcome when they got there. Instead of every house expecting company and piling up the fire half chimney high, blessing on it, how the ghost exalted, how it bared its breath of breast and opened its capacitive palm and floated out, pouring with a generous hand its bright and harmless mirth on everything within its reach, and very lamplighter, who ran on before dawning in the dusky tree with specks of light, and who was dressed to spend the evening somewhere last, out loudly, as the spirit passed through the little Ned and lamplighter that had any company but Christmas, and now without a word of warning, from a ghost they stood upon bleak and desert moor, where monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about as though it were a brutal place of giants, and water spread itself wheresoever it listed or would have done so, for the frost that held it prisoner, the next grew but the moss and furs, of course, rank grass down the west setting sun, and had left a streak of furry red, which glared upon the desolation for an instant, like a solemn eye in him frowning lower, lower, lower yet, was lost in the thick gloom of darkest night. What place is this? asked Scrooge. A place where miners live, who labors in the brows of the earth. Return the spirit, but they know me see. I light and shone from the window of a hut, and swiftly in the advance toward it, passing through the wall of mud and stone, they found a cheerful company assembled round of a glowing fire, an old, old man and woman, with their children and their children's children, and another generation beyond that, all decked out gainly in the holiday attire, the old man in a voice that seldom rose above the howling of the wind upon the barren waste was singing them a Christmas song. It had been a very old song when he was a boy, and from time to time they all joined in the chorus. So surely as they raised their voices, the old men got quite blithe and loud, and so surely as they stopped his figure and sank again, the spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe, and passing on above, the morn spread whether or not to see, to see the to Scrooge Torter looking back, he saw the last of the land, a frightful rage of rocks behind them, and his ears were deafened by the thundering of water as it rolled and roared and raged among the dreadful caverns it had worn, and fiercely tried to undermine the earth, built upon the dismissal reef of sunken rocks, some league or so from shore, on which the waters shaft and dashed, and wild year through there stood a solitary lighthouse, great heaps of seaweed clung to its base, and storm birds were born of the wind, one might suppose that seaweed of the water rose and fell about it. Like the waves, they schemed. But even here, two men who watched the light had made a fire that through the loophole in the thick stone wall shed out of a ray of brightness on the awful sea, joining their horny hands over the rough table at which they sat. They wished each other Merry Christmas in their can of grog, and one of them, the elder too, with his face all damaged and scarred, with hard weather as the figurehead of the old ship might be struck of a sturdy song. That was like the gale itself. Again the ghost sped up 
a bottomless black and heavy sea, on and on until being far away, as he told Scrooge, from any shore, they lined up the ship. They stood beside the helmsman at the wheel, the lookout in the bow, the officers who had the watch on a dark, ghostly figure in their several stations, but every man among them hummed a Christmas tune, or had a Christmas thought, or spoke below his breath to his companion of some bygone Christmas day, with homeward hopes belonging to it, and every man on board walking or sleeping good or bad had a kinder word for another on the day that on any day in the year they had shared the some extent in its festivities and had remembered those he cared for at a distance and had known that they are delighted to remember him and was a great surprise to scrooge while listening to the moaning of the wind and thinking what a solemn thing it was to move on through the lonely darkness over the unknown abyss whose depths were secret as profound as death. It was a great surprise to Scrooge. While thus engaged to hear a hearty laugh, it was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize it as its own nephew and find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room with the spirit standing smiling by his side and looking at the same nephew with approving affability. Ha-ha! <laughs> laughed Scrooge's nephew. Ha-ha-ha! <laughs> you should happen, by any unlikely chance, to know a man more blessed in a lab than Scrooge's nephew, all I can say is I should like to know him to introduce you him to me, and I'll cultivate his acquaintance. It is a fair, even-handed, novel adjustment of things that's well... There is an infection and disease and sorrow. There is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humor. When Scrooge's nephew laughed in this way, holding his sides and rolling his head and twisting his face into the most extravagant coordinates on Scrooge's niece by marriage, laughed as heartily as he and their assembled friends, being not a bit behind in hand, roared out lustily. <laughs> He said that Christmas was a humbug, as I live, cried Scrooge's nephew. He believed it too. More shame for him, Fred, said Scrooge's niece indulgently. Bless one of those women. They never do anything by halves. They are always on the earnest. She was very pretty, exceeding pretty, with a dimple and surprised-looking capital face, a ripe little mouth that seemed made to be kissed. As no doubt it was all kinds of good little dots about her chin that melted into one another when she laughed at the sunniest pair of eyes you ever saw in any little creature's hand. Although she was what you would have called provoking, you know, by satisfactory, too. Oh, perfectly satisfactory. He's a comical old fellow, said Scrooge's nephew. That's the truth, and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he is very rich, I'm afraid, hinted Scrooge's niece. At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear, said Scrooge's nephew. His wealth is of no use to him, and he don't do any good with it. 
he don't make himself comfortable with it, he hasn't the satisfactory of thinking <laughs> that he is ever going to benefit us with it. I have no patience with him, observed Scrooge's niece. Scrooge's niece and sister, and all the other ladies, expressed the same opinion. Oh, I have, said Scrooge's nephew. I am sorry for him. I couldn't be angry with him if I tried, who suffers by his ill whims. Himself always here, he takes it into hand and to dislike us, and he won't come and dine with us. What what's the consequence? He don't lose much of a dinner, indeed. I think he loses a very good dinner, interrupted Scrooge's niece. Everybody else would have said the same, and they must be allowed to have been competent judges, because they had just had dinner, and with the dessert upon the table, we clustered around the fire by lamplight. Well, I'm very glad to hear it, said Scrooge's nephew, because I have great faith in this young housekeeper. What do you say, Topper? Topper had clearly got his eye upon one of Scrooge's niece's sisters, for he answered, that's a bachelor and what a wrenched outcast, who had no right to express an opinion on the subject. Wearing Scrooge's niece's sister, the plump one of the lace tucker, not the one with the roses blushed. Do go on, Fred, said Scrooge's niece, clapping her hands. He never finishes what he begins to say. He is such a ridiculous fellow. Scrooge's nephew reveled in another laugh and asked if it wasn't possible to keep the infection off. Though the plump sister tried hard to do it with aromatic vinegar, his example would anonymously follow. I was only going to say that Scrooge's nephew, that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us was not making him merry with us, is, as I think, that he loses some pleasant moments, which could do him no harm. I am sure he loses pleasanter companions than he could find in his own thoughts, either in his amounty old office or his dusty chamber. I mean, to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas until he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him. If he finds me going there in good temper, year after year, and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If the only puts him in the bound and leave his poor clerk fifty pounds, that's something. And I think I shook him yesterday. It was their turn to laugh. Now at the notion of his shaking Scrooge, but being thoroughly good nature and not much caring what they laughed at, so they laughed at eight rate. He encouraged them in the merriment and passed the bottle jo joyously. After tea, they had some music before they were in a musically family and knew what they were about. When they sung a glee or a catch, I can assure you, especially the trooper, who could growl away in the bass like a good one and never swell the large veins in his forehead and get red in the face over it. Scrooge's nieces played well upon the harp and played among other tunes. Simple little ear, a mere nothing. You might learn to whistle in, in two minutes, which had been familiar to the child who had fetched Scrooge from the boarding school, as he'd been reminded by the ghost of Christmas past. When this strain of music sounded, all the things that ghost had shown him came upon his mind. He softened more and more, and thought that if he could have listened 
to it often. Years ago, he might have cultivated that kindness of life of his own, happiness and with his own hands, without resorting to the sexton's spade that buried Jacob Marley. But they didn't devote the whole evening to music. After a while, they played at forfeits, for it is good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas. When a mighty founder was a child himself, stop, there was a first game at Blind Man's Bluff. Of course there was, and I no more believe Topper was really blind than I believe he had eyes in his boots. My opinion is that it was done thing between him and Scrooge's nephew, and that ghost of the Christmas present knew it. The way he went after that plump sister in the lace locker was an outrage on the crudity of human nature, knocking down the fire ends, tumbling over the chairs, bumping against the piano, smothering himself the curtains, wherever she went, there went he. He always knew there was a plump sister was. He wouldn't catch anybody else. If you had fallen up against him, as some of them did on purpose, he wouldn't have made a fenton of endeavoring to seize you, which would have been an effort to your understanding, and would instantly have sided off to the direction of the plump sister. She often cried out that it wasn't fair, and it really was not. But when at last he caught her, when in spite of all her silken rustlings and her rapid fluttering past him, he got her into a corner and went. There was no escape. Then he conducted what is the most accessible for the pretending not to know her. He's pretending that it was a necessary to touch her hand, headdress and further to assure himself of her identity by pressing a certain ring upon her finger and a certain chain about her neck was vile. Monstrous! No doubt she told him her opinion of it. When another blind man being in an office, they were very confidential together behind the curtains. Scrooge's niece was not one of the blind men's blood party, but was made comfortable with a large chair and a footstool in a snug corner where the ghost and Scrooge were close behind her, but they joined in the forfeits and loved her love the admiration with all the letters of the alphabet. Likewise, at the game of how, when, and where, she was a very great and to do the secret joy of the Scrooge's nephew, be her sister's hollow. Though they were sharp girls too, as Topper could have told you, there might have been twenty people there, young and old, but they all played, and so did Scrooge, and for wholly forgetting in the interest he had in what was going on, and that his voice made no sound in their ears. He sometimes came out with the guests quite loud, and very often guessed quite right too, for the sharpest needle and the best White Capel, warned to, not to cut in the eye, was not sharper than Scrooge. Blunt as he took Gittin in his hand to be, the ghost was greatly pleased to find him in the mood, and looked upon him with such favor, and he begged like a boy to be allowed to stay until the guest departed. But this, the spirit said, could not be done. Here is a new game, said Scrooge. One half hour, spirit, only me. It was a game called Yes and No, where Scrooge's nephew had to think of something, and the rest must find out he only answering to the questions yes or no, as the case was. 
the brisk unfiring the question to which he was exposed and licked it from him was he thinking of an animal a live animal a rather a disagreeable animal a savage animal an animal that growled and grunted sometimes and talked sometimes and lived in london and walked about the streets and wasn't made to show up what wasn't led by anybody and didn't live in margarine and was never killed in a market and was not a horse or a mule or a cow or a bull or a tiger or a dog or a pig or a cat or a bear at least fresh question that was put to him his nephew burst into a fresh roar of laughter and was no inexpressibly tickled that he was abolished to get up off his sofa and step at last on the plump sister falling into a similar state cried out i have found it out i know what it is friend i know what it is what is it cried fred it's your uncle scrooge which is certainly what his admiration was the universal signified though some object was the reply to it it is a bear oughtn't to have been yes in saying much but an answer in the negative was significant to have diversed their thoughts from mr scrooge supposing that they had ever had any tendency that way he has given us plenty of merriment i am sure said fred and it would be ungrateful not to drink in his health here's a glass of mulled wine ready to our hand at the moment and i say uncle scrooge well uncle scrooge they cried a merry christmas and a happy new year to the old man whatever he is said scrooge's nephew he wouldn't take it from me but may he have it nevertheless uncle scrooge uncle scrooge had impersonally become so gay and light of heart that he would have pledged the unconscious company in return and thanked them in an unhonorable speech if the ghost had given him time but the whole scene passed off in breath at the last word spoken by his nephew and he and his spirit were again upon their travels much they saw and far they went and many homes they visited but always with a happy end the spirits stood beside sick beds and they were cheerful and foreign lands and they were close at home by struggling men and they were patient in their greater hope by poverty and it was rich in almshouse in hospital and jail in miseries every refuge where vain men in his little brief authority had not made fast the door and bared the spirit out he had left his blessing and taunt scrooge in his percepts okay so that was part two of christmas present so i hope you enjoyed that part two short uh part three will be short but as always this is ty saying Happy holidays! Bye!